What's changing in your professional world? You might most honestly answer with, well, what's not changing? Technology, talent, customers' expectations, keeping up with both the digital and offline worlds. All these and more have fundamentally changed sales and marketing. Today, we'll talk with an expert on productive disruption, co-author of one of the most influential business books of the past decade, and a distinguished vice president with Gartner. It's Brent Adamson on the Manager Message Podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. That means improvements in your revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. I do that through consulting, professional speaking, and advisory work. My programs include guidance for message leadership with groups of professionals, as well as messaging transformation across an organization and professional speaking to corporations and associations. On this podcast, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. First, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message And third, the management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. My new book is available from Career Press. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books. The audio version is on Audible and Apple. Basically, you can find it in various formats wherever fine business books are sold. You can also find a sample of the introduction in the first chapter on my website, jimcar.com. We bring all of this together for you because, simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. Today's guest is at the very forefront of productive disruption when it comes to sales and marketing. Brent Adamson is the chief storyteller for Gartner's sales and marketing practices. He has more than 25 years of experience as a researcher, author, executive facilitator, and speaker. You might know Brent as the co-author of the best-selling book, The Challenger Sale, as well as its very popular successor, The Challenger Customer. You'll also see his work in publications such as Harvard Business Review, Forbes, in Gartner's sales and marketing blogs, HubSpot's sales blogs, and numerous podcasts. Brent even hosts a podcast for Gartner called Lessons in Sales Leadership. Brent is a native of Omaha, Nebraska. I'm trying to think, Brent, there seems like there's some other business guy that's from Omaha. We'll think of it. Apparently, Brent is also a collector of university degrees. He earned an MBA with distinction from the University of Michigan, also a BA in political science from Michigan, and MAs in political science in German, plus a PhD in applied linguistics from the University of Texas. He's even served on the faculty at Michigan State. Brent lives in Leesburg, Virginia with his wife and two daughters. Brent, what a pleasure. Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast. Well, thank you, Jim. It's great to be with you, and uh, I appreciate that's a that's a lot of intro. <laughs> I can see if I can follow it up with anything interesting to say. <laughs> we even we even uh, cut some stuff out here, but you have a just a great integrative background, and you've been a thought leader and a practice leader, and this is a great venue and a great audience that uh, I'm sure you can help inform. 
Some of our listeners, Brent, might be already quite familiar with the work that you and your colleagues do at Gartner, but for others, it may be a little more mysterious. So could you just describe briefly what Gartner does in service to sales and marketing teams and executives and what your role is these days? Yeah, sure. Absolutely, Jim. In fact, I'll limit it to just the business to business side. We we have a a very large marketing practice at Gartner and a large and growing sales practice at Gartner. And where I sit most of the time across those two is in the business to business space. Although I, I work on the consumer side a little bit as well. That's a whole nother podcast for another time. But the, um, it, so the way, the way it works, and this all comes out of our legacy at what used to be called the corporate executive board or CEB, which Gartner acquired a couple of years ago. And that's where I've spent the last 16 years of my career. And it's really been across that time, including ongoing today, sort of our mission in life to understand as best as we possibly can, what does world-class business-to-business sales and marketing look like in, as you mentioned, an incredibly rapidly evolving world. So we we do that across industries, across geographies, go-to-market models, you name it. So whether you sell globally or nationally, whether you sell direct or indirect, whether you're selling, you know, capital equipment or software, business services or, you know, medical devices, what we're truly trying to understand is what are the toughest challenges facing heads of sales, heads of marketing today? How are those challenges changing? How are they evolving? And then what do best practice answers look like to address those challenges? We get after that with a lot of data. It's really much, a, a particularly in the last five to 10 years, a, a very much a, a quantitative driven practice where we've gotten gather a lot of data, but then we do a lot of analysis on that data, which we can talk a little bit about today. But then we also have a qualitative side to our work as well, which goes out and we spend a huge amount of time across the year on the phone, in person with heads of sales, heads of marketing, sort of sharing our data, sharing what we're learning, sharing our analysis, what we think it means. And then then those individuals also at the same time share back, well, Here's how we're handling that situation, or here's what we've done to approach that particular challenge. And that turns into best practices, which then get profiled and, and then sort of sent back out into the wild to our, to our membership. My personal role in all that is the chief storyteller title, like for what it's worth, I, well, I completely made that up, but the, <laughs> yeah, but the, uh, but the, uh, it's not an official title. They don't, title. They don't know, know the right? difference. There's an irony. You see, it's, it's about storytelling. <laughs> There's one there. But the, um, my role is we have these, we have large research teams that build all this work and I help those teams then turn that research into stories, into presentations, into podcasts, into meetings. And so I'm kind of the translator on the team, although my background's all research as well. And then personally, I spend my time on airplanes traveling around the world, sharing that work in executive retreats with larger groups at individual companies, uh, you name it. So, you know, you mentioned I'm from Leesburg, which is technically true, although I typically tell people I'm from row 12 seat C, where I spend a lot of my time. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you get the upgrade. Oh, which, that's exactly uh, right. Always... By, by the way, so there's this rule about this. So that the worst place to finish in sales is second, right? There's a longstanding belief in sales. The worst place to finish in sales is second. That's absolutely true. The worst place to finish on the upgrade list is first. That's, that's, uh, yes, I've had that you, happen. Yeah, you need to all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and message manager listeners, as we record this, I've, I've just learned that the flight that I'm was to be taking later today up to a, a client conference has has been canceled due to weather and and all that. So we're going to work all that part out. So I'm I'm almost hesitant to use the well. Let's take a thirty thousand foot view first, but uh, we'll go ahead and roll with it. Given that we're talking about flights and airplanes, from that thirty thousand foot view, and then Brent, we can we can go down a little bit more granular as we go along. I'm really uh, curious about your view, the kind of the state of things in sales and and marketing. You are obviously very plugged in with chief sales officers, chief marketing officers, 
And to some degree, we might look across the landscape and say it's a little bit of a mixed bag. A lot of organizations are doing very well, keeping up with change. We've had a pretty sustained period of economic growth here in the U.S. and and most global markets. At the same time, you look at some sales metrics, especially on the B2B side, as we're talking about today, it could be a little depressing. Win rates tend to be stuck at less than 50%. Uh, Sales reps are finding it increasingly harder to make their quotas. We spoke on this podcast a few weeks ago with Dr. Chris Mormon from uh, Duke University about the results from the CMO survey and learned that marketing leaders give themselves some low marks in, in areas about delivering on customer experience, et cetera. So given that there's a, I guess we could look at the, the positive, you know, the glass full side and the glass empty side, but what's your view if there's a state of the union today about sales and marketing, what are you seeing? You know, it's, it's a really good question. And I, I think in some ways the headline is none of us really know what we're seeing It's it, because it keeps changing, right? We've talked to, particularly on the sales side, we've been talking to heads of sales for the last two years now about what are you doing to prepare for the downturn when it comes. And here we are two years down the road and it still hasn't gotten here. <laughs> it makes you wonder, it's like, well, it is the stock market I think was up, well, certainly up on Friday. I don't know if that's, just, I think it's down a little bit today, but the, uh, but one way or another, there seems to be this sense of like, I don't know about impending doom, but there is this downturn out there. There's uncertainty. And yet what I'm finding, Jim, is really interesting is that when you think on the sales side, when you talk to heads of sales, they don't seem to be doing that much different. And, and one of one head of sales I know well, he, he actually put it to me like this. He said, look, the worst thing you could do in the sales organization in preparing for a downturn is to prepare too early. What you actually would, if you're going to fail to time it right, which is almost impossible, you want to miss it too late, not too early. Because if you start pulling back resources and pulling out cost and, and pulling out supply, then you risk if the downturn doesn't arrive of actually disappointing customers because you don't have product to deliver or you've left opportunity or money on the table, which is far worse than overspending for a few months post downturn. So it's a really interesting thing to think about. But but I think more interesting than that, uh, there's so much to talk about here, but the um, you know, it's funny, I did a meeting with heads of sales, just a small group, about 12 or 15 just the other day. And, and this is what they wanted to start with. They wanted to start with the very same question. It was like, what are you doing to prepare for the downturn? So I said, okay, what do you guys want to talk about? So I let them loose. I facilitated the discussion. And it was interesting, Jim, is half an hour into the discussion, not a single one of them had actually mentioned the economy, which, which uh, this, is, this is going somewhere, I promise, because it was so interesting was <laughs> they talked about tariffs. They talked about Brexit. They talked about millennials and how they don't stick around because they want to keep changing jobs. They talked about the closing of the border of Mexico, which didn't ultimately happen. They talked about politics. They talked about uncertainty. And yet none of them talked about the actual economy. And I stopped them. I, you know, 20 minutes of this conversation said, you guys wanted to talk about the economy, and yet you're not talking about the economy. You're talking about much bigger picture. And they said, yeah, 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 we'll get to the economy. But what's really my problem is, and they kept <laughs> circling around on, on this whole set of questions and attributes of today's environment that are incredibly variable. You know that overuse, I don't know if it's overused, but that the, the, the acronym people use a lot, they VUCA, which is variable, uncertain, and et cetera. But that's kind of where we are. It's just that I think the best sales and marketing leaders today aren't preparing for the downturn. I just think they're preparing for uncertainty because it's whether the downturn happens or not, we've you know, heading into an election year in the States, for example, nobody seems to really have a good sense for where any of it's going, let alone just interest rates or the stock market. And if you are not thinking about scenario planning, if you're not thinking about building flexibility into your organization, if this is far, far beyond simply just stripping costs out of the system, it requires a nimbleness, a flexibility, a creativity to your thinking, uh, an ability to, to imagine what else might happen 
that in my mind, I've not seen in 16 years. And it's really putting some, I think, a real burden on leadership today to to be adaptive and adaptable in this environment in ways I've never seen before. It's fascinating to watch. It's interesting as you use the term uncertainty. And if I think way back to my own finance training many years ago, there is a difference between risk and uncertainty. So risk are things that as you say, different scenarios, different outcomes, and we can likely assign some sort of probability to them. Whereas uncertainty is, frankly, you don't know quite what's coming or when it's coming or what the impact might be. And that was really my next question, Brent, is is what you find are the things that people are wrestling with these days. It sounds like it's less, as you say, about, say, the economy, the kind of risky things of how long will, you know, how long will the downturn be or what will that look like, but more about how do we get ourselves ready for the things that we know are going to come, but we don't really know what they are or when they happen. That's exactly right. It's when's the next shoe going to fall? And, and you know, and not to get political because that's dangerous waters in a podcast, but we have an administration right now that I think, you know, irrespective of where you land on the political spectrum, I think we could all agree is, is well, it's not very predictable. <laughs> so the, uh, right. uh, and some would say it's a strength, some would say it's a weakness, but either way, it's a reality. And so that's a, uh, that it, it becomes really hard to manage a multi-million slash multi-billion dollar organization with long supply chains and tens of thousands of employees in a world where, you know, those are big ships that take a lot of time to move. And, and this things seem to be moving on a dime sometimes and then moving back and then not moving at all. <laughs> so so I, I don't envy being a leader. I'm glad I'm not a chief X, uh, CXO in this world because I, I would find this incredibly difficult to plan. And so, by the way, so kind of where this needs to go next, I think is a discussion in some ways is where, where I'm seeing then is it leads to this really interesting, one of two things, either you embrace it and you build the variability in your organization, the, 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 you know, the scenario planning, the kinds of things we're talking about, or you hunker down and the hunker down mentality is is one thing that we see quite often, which is let's just run the playbook that we know. Let's bang the phones or let's just, you know, if I'm a marketer, let's just try and put more opportunity into the pipeline. And then, you know, so our, our conversion rates might be lower than they were in the past. So let's just stuff the top of the funnel with more opportunity because we don't know what to do. So we just know, we just do what we know to do. But those plays we're finding are just becoming less and less synchronized, those marketing and sales plays less and less synchronized with, with how buying is happening. And, and uh, you know, to comp- if we come down in altitude a couple 10,000 feet, that's the thing that we're really watching more closely, rather these big macro trends, which are on all our minds, is this somewhere between macro and micro is this really fascinating story of sales and marketing left to their own devices running a playbook that became out of date somewhere between five to 10 years ago because customer buying behavior is changing far more quickly than sales and marketing behavior. I really like the the structure that you talk about with playbooks and plays, and I think that's worthy of some more discussion as well. But I do want to ask, even before we get into that, so if some of the doing things in a, in a certain way and, and saying, well, some of the external pressures, some of the external risks, we kind of t- take as given. We have to do our thing and get more nimble and get more agile be able to move more quickly, whether big business or small business, what are the things that leaders are looking at to know, are we getting more nimble? And that's a squishy question, but we probably have some well-established metrics, whether they be for opportunities and conversions, et cetera, et cetera, as you say, in the playbook that we've been referring to over time. Are there some things that you see leaders are pointing toward to say, oh, we're, we're getting our own house in order in a better way? 
I don't, not to sound too, uh, maybe I don't know if it's cynical, but pessimistic, but I don't know that we are. I mean, I, I don't mean that in a mean-spirited sort of way, but I, I don't know if any of us have a full grasp of how the world is changing so quickly. And, and as we dive into this deeper, I, you know, there's there's some things going on on the customer side that I think that we're sharing with our clientele right now that are just not on anyone's radar screen in some pretty important ways. And in some ways, they take what we've been talking about for the last 10 years, particularly around the body of work known as Challenger, and upending some strategies that have clearly through all of our data been incredibly effective for the last 10 years. And we're beginning to see sort of diminishing returns on the, on the very playbook, for example, that we've been advocating for. And I don't know that people have fully just appreciated yet people being leaders, just how disruptive some of these, uh, these changes are, are going to be. And, and in some ways, I think others are just like they're they're two steps out instead of one step out in the future. So they're looking at AI and they're looking at machine learning and they're looking at algorithms and how we can move towards more of a you know a data driven organization, which is by the way really smart. And I think there's really powerful things going on there, but we're missing sort of the the narrative that sits right in front of us right now that I, I think in some ways is arguably more important. Although I mean, more direct answer to your question around. I think there's you, certainly you see companies adopting more of an agile approach. They are driving decision making down closer to the line. But you know, these things have been things that people talk about for the last what five ten years. There's when I say adopt an agile approach, one it's 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 vague to the point of almost cliche, and two it's not a surprising idea. But but you see the urgency of figuring that like well, okay practically brass tacks. What does that mean for our organization? How are we going to operate in a quote unquote agile manner? What are we going to do that's different? Who's going to get decision-making authority? How are we going to diffuse it? How are we going to let senior management or, or bring senior management to a willingness that they're willing to let go of the reins a little bit and let you know smaller, more agile or nimble teams below them make decisions? Maybe they're less disruptive, maybe they're smaller in scope, but they're churning through those decisions in a more rapid manner so they can test and learn. You know, again, everything I just said feels a little bit cliche to me when I say it out loud, but I'll tell you the companies that we see being most successful in this environment are the ones that are adopting that kind of not just mentality, but that kind of practice because it, because that they're building, I think one, they're just learning and changing more quickly, but two, at the same time, they're building a muscle that allows them to develop that kind because that's not a skill, as you know, Jim, that you can develop overnight, right? It takes time to to build that kind of agility into your organization. And it's one of those things where like now is a great time to be developing and learning how to do that because there's going to come a time where it's going to be urgently needed and it's that's the wrong time to start. What are some of the things that you're seeing that others either aren't seeing or or maybe not fully appreciating how to address it. Here's the thing that we've been talking about a lot over the last eight months, which I find super interesting. And it all kind of starts with a pie chart. <laughs> Everything for us either starts with a pie chart or a bar chart. But the um, So we go out and we, we survey not just marketers and, and sales executives every year, but I think in many ways over the last particularly five years, our most productive research isn't been about studying sale, selling or marketing. It's been studying buying, B2B buying, and and how B2B buying is evolving. In fact, the, the, the Challenger customer, the second book we wrote in the Challenger series, really uh, kind of picked up that thread and looked at it very carefully through the lens of the number of stakeholders involved in a typical B2B purchase, which we at that time, which is now about six years ago, we identified to be 5.4, that on average, there are 5.4 different people inside a, a B2B organization all involved in a purchase. And we wrote the whole book about the 5.4. I traveled all over the world talking about the 5.4. And lo and behold, the, the following year when we redid that research, it had gone up to 6.8. Two years later, it was over eight. These days, when we run that same survey, that number sitting in double digits, somewhere between 10 and 11. 
and we can come back and talk about why that number's gone up if you'd like. But it's it's a super interesting dynamic. And it's just one, but it's one symptom of this very rapidly evolving and dramatically changing world of B to be buying. And and from one dimension is just all the different people that are now involved. It's if you're selling a bigger, broader solution that touches more individual functions inside a customer organization, stands the reason that different people from each of those different parts of those functions are we're going to have a say in what gets bought. And what we're finding ultimately is it's not really a numbers problem, whether it's six, eight, 10, or 12, that the number of people isn't really the problem. It's the diversity of the people. The fact that you have multiple functions, multiple geographies, multiple uh, levels, who all then, when they come together to reach consensus around a buying decision of a multi-million dollar solution, struggle to find common ground. And so they, they tend to land on what we've come to call the lowest common denominator of buying, which is like, well, let's do as little as we can and spend as less as, as, as little as possible. So that, and if you're the supplier selling into that environment of, of lowest common denominator buying, it turns out you don't sell, you sell, but you don't sell very big solutions. That's kind of catching up to where we were. We this is what we've been talking about for the last several years, but the last two years and the last year and a half, really, the thing that we've actually been focused on more, Jim, is less about the number of people and it's the amount of information that's out there in the world. So, so if you think about you think about the journey that we've all been on, not as marketers or sellers, but as human beings, just as consumers and just people in today's world, right? So that it's no surprise to anyone that we'd say that we now live in a world that's just awash in information. That's been true for the better part of probably, what, 10 years easily, if not more. But largely in the B2B space, it's been a world where your customers are empowered with all this knowledge and all this information primarily online, and they can do their own learning. They can put off contacting a supplier later and later in the purchase process. And when they do call up a supplier, there's very little left to discuss, but prices and discounts. But but that story has largely been a story up until now of your customers have got all this information they can choose from, and it's just—it's a story of separating signal from noise. Let me let me go out and do my research and figure out which information is believable, which information is most relevant, and cherry pick the information that's most relevant and believable to me, and then let's make a decision on that. But last year, Jim, when we went out, and we studied customers. We simply asked them a very straightforward question on a scale of one to seven. We simply asked them, to what degree did you find the information that you encountered as part of this purchase to be generally of high quality? And 89% of the over 1,000 B2B customer stakeholders we surveyed said, yes, we agreed or agreed strongly that generally speaking, the information encountered as part of that purchase was, was of high quality, which, which tells you something I think fundamentally important and just profoundly interesting about today's world, which is today's world is not just a world awash in high quantities of information. Today is a world that is awash in high quantities of high quality information. And what I mean by that is, there's so much information out there to be sure, but it's not just any information. It's actually pretty good information. It's backed by data. It's backed by evidence. It's backed by research. It's got white papers. It's got subject matter experts. It's thought leadership. And so now if I'm a customer and I go out and do my own due diligence, my own research, I just get almost immediately overwhelmed because I got one company telling me I should zig and they've got data, they've got analytics, they've got case studies, they've got experts saying I should zig. And another company is they're telling me to zag and they've got data, they've got experts, they've got you know uh, analytics and subject matter experts telling me I should zag. And I don't know what to do because one tell me go left, the other one tell me to go right. They're both believable, but what do I do? So now I'm just confused at a higher level, leaving me just maybe to decide not to decide. And, and if you play this out in this world, and this is where I think Challenger gets so interesting because in some ways, We've been telling companies, I think absolutely rightly so over the last 10 years, you need to build this machine that delivers what we've come to call commercial insight out into the marketplace, which is content and information that makes your customer not smarter about you, but makes them smarter about themselves, learn, teach them new ways to make money or save money. But in that world where if you get really, really good at, at, at challenging your customer's thinking, in some ways you are just 
contributing to this underlying problem. And, and just one last thought, and I, I promise I'll take a breath, but there's something so interesting from the marketers on the call today. The thing that's so interesting, if you ask, well, how the heck did we get here? In many ways, we as suppliers are all complicit in this trend because there's there's not a single supplier. I imagine you've seen the same thing. In fact, some ways, Jim, you and I have been there at the front seat helping customer companies. Yeah, absolutely. Trend, which is there's not a single company out there for the last five years who hasn't said, you know what, whether they've done challenge or commercial insight or not, just park that, it doesn't matter. But you think every company out there said to some degree or another, you know what, we need to be a, wait for it, we need to be a, a thought leader in our industry. Because if we can be a thought leader, then we're gonna differentiate ourselves. If we can be a thought leader, we're gonna set ourselves apart. If we can be a thought leader, then our customers and potential customers will, will come to us first because they know that they can believe us. They know that they can trust us. They know that we have smart things to say. They'll know that we're on their side. And so over the last five years, everyone has essentially called the exact same play of being a thought leader. And marketers these days are now better equipped with the tools, the machinery, the infrastructure to make good on that promise, better than ever before. So we've all doubled down on content marketing. We've all gone out and bought marketing automation. We've all gone out and built dashboards that tell us on the first Tuesday of every month, we got to put out another blog post. And so now we're flooding the world, not just with content, but with better content than ever before, with better data, better analytics. And you always left our customers completely overwhelmed, confused at a higher level because everybody's saying smart things and no one really knows what to do. And that's where we are today. And I, and that's fascinating. It, it is fascinating. And uh, I was actually scribbling a note, the language you used. And then there are, there are a couple of dots that perhaps we can connect here as well in, in seeing kind of what are the, the more durable conclusions from Challenger. And then some things, as you say, that, that we even have to revisit today. You were saying empowered, which is true. We have uh, that, that buyers at all levels are more empowered. And then I had scribbled down the phrase until they're overwhelmed. And you're not about being overwhelmed, which is actually the case too. A couple of, of things we heard on uh, some prior episodes of this podcast, and I get, I'll be interested in your thoughts on this as well, Brent. One was Tom Steenberg, who's a researcher at University of Virginia. He wrote, co-authored an article in Harvard Business Review about a year and a half ago about how to sell new products. And he, he was they, they studied those few companies that consistently are good at selling new stuff versus those who tend to flail around with it and, uh, and tend to have disappointing results. And he, one of the takeaways that Tom mentioned is we fail to understand oftentimes as sellers, the degree of change that we're asking from our buyers. Yeah. Unless it's just to kind of refill our previous order, but even if it's a new version of their same stuff, but especially as we're looking at, at we're challenging their thinking and, and telling them to adopt a new approach that that's, that's scary. And that tends to, people want to pump the brakes on that. We were speaking a couple of months ago to uh, Todd Capone, who, and he was looking at it more from the B2C side, but his work was about looking at the ratings and reviews on the familiar five-star scale. And he said, you know, what we found across industries is the best reviews for your business or for your products is not a five. It's not even a 4.9. The sweet spot is somewhere between 4.2 and 4.5. People are going to be looking for, you know, where are the warts? Where are the places that it won't work? It doesn't fit me, et cetera. And they'll find more credibility. So I guess what I'm saying here, and, and, and I'd love you to bring that back around to what do you think of the more enduring teachings, the more enduring takeaways from Challenger is it seems like where our buyers can be so overwhelmed. There's not only more information, but as you say, high quality information, 
is part of our role to kind of say, here's whom we don't serve very well. Here's who doesn't fit. Here, let, let us guide you as a potential buyer through this and, and maybe say early on, you know what, you're, you're actually not the best fit. You should talk to somebody else. Well, you know, let's unpack that a little bit. There's a lot going on there. So, and it's super interesting. So if you think about sort of what's left from Challenger, I think there's actually quite a lot left from Challenger. Because in many ways, it's funny, you think about whether you've adopted the Challenger approach and you're on the Challenger journey and you're trying to build true commercial insight as we've described it, or maybe you're just pushing on this idea of thought leadership one way or another. My sense is that we're all collectively in what I tend to call a smartness arms race, right? It's like we're all trying to, to appear smart, to be smart. And so one question is, so what do you do when, like, when being smarter and smarter just makes you more and more average, I think is a really interesting question. And so one thing you probably don't want to do is appear dumb, right? So, <laughs> I, I say, so the, the answer That's is like- That's been true for years though, right? right? Well, exactly. And yet, and, and yet here I am. But the, uh, but the, <laughs> but the, 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 so the obvious answer is not like, well, then say less smart things, right? Uh, no one's going to unilaterally disarm in a smartness arms race, and nor would we advocate for that. But I think what it is telling us though, is that in this world that we're in today, what used to be a differentiator is very quickly becoming table stakes, that everybody looks pretty smart. Everybody has insightful or thought leadershipy things to say. And while, you know, and I've had actually, you know, clients come up to me, they're actually frustrated to hear this story. They're a little, sometimes even angry. It's like, look, you told me to build this insight. Now you tell me it doesn't work. It's like, I'm not telling you it doesn't work. And I'm not, but I'm just telling you like the world keeps changing. It's like, it's really frustrating in some ways, right? But they, this, this is why we're a research organization, not a sales methodology shop, for example, because we just, we just study the world and how it keeps, it continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. But I, but I do think that we're all better off in a world where we're having conversations with our customers about our customers, as opposed to about our organization, helping them find new ways to compete, find new ways to make money and save money. But the thing that we have to appreciate in this world, though, is that while we're doing that, others are too. That's the important sort of ingredient that we, we're overlooking right now is this, the, the word that I keep coming back to in all this work, I think, Jim, is, is simply the word context. So whether you're a thought leader, whether you're a challenger, whether you're just saying smart things, you have to understand how all of the information that you're sharing with your customers fits into the context of all of the other information that they're consuming from all of those other sources, both online and off, sales and not. And, and understanding how they are going to put it together, or for that matter, struggle to put it together. And so the, this lands us in this really interesting place we spent the last six months really studying deeply and talking about all the world is that the sales reps, our data tell us, that are most likely to win in this world are the ones who adopt a very specific strategy towards information, how they work with their customers or prospective customers around the idea of information. And when we when we look at the world from this perspective of sort of how do customers perceive sales reps as engaging them with information, we find there's sort of three approaches. There's a giving approach to information, a telling approach to information, and what we've come to call a sense-making approach to information. So giving is, I call, I call the giving approach sort of indiscriminate generosity. It's like, you know, here's a, here's a white paper. Here's another white paper. Oh, you got a question about that? Here's another white paper. Here's some data. Here's a piece of collateral. Let me, let me put you in touch with these three other people who will then proceed to give you even more information. So the, the giving sales rep, and by the way, it's interesting about giving sales. We've all seen these individuals. Sometimes maybe we've even been this individual. We feel that the only way to justify calling the customer is having something new to say. I need another insight. I need another piece of information. Otherwise, I don't have a reason to call them. And so that you just wind up in this sort of scenario of give and give and give, all in all with good intentions. And particularly if the customer is asking for information, it seems like you'd be crazy to say no. But the flip side is this telling rep. So the telling rep is the, the rep who is very focused on just 
they've got that, you know, like the 30 years of experience, the deep industry expertise, the long knowledge of that particular industry vertical. And they're the ones say, you know what, I've been doing this a long time, Jim, you know, here's what you need to do. And that's, let me give you my advice. And so it's a very personal perspective based on individual expertise. And we find both the giving rep and the telling rep actually struggle mightily in this world, although for very different reasons. And the rep that's adopt this sense-making approach is by far the one most likely to win. So a sense-making uh, rep is a sales rep who essentially sits down with a customer or figuratively or literally and says, you know, look, there's a lot of information out there. I would imagine you've seen most of it or at least a lot of it. I would imagine it's raised all sorts of questions for you. I've got this other perspective I'd like to share with you, but I think more than anything else, the way I could probably be most helpful is just to help you put it all together, help you understand how this fits into that, how it fits with that, what where it conflicts with this, and just help you think for yourself, right? What do you conclude about this? I can give you some questions or some frameworks or a diagnostic tool to help you understand what's best for you and just understanding how to put all this information together. And that is, if I'm going to place a bet in sales, and for that matter, I think marketing today, although we've studied sales, we're getting to marketing with sense making. But if I'm going to place a bet in today's world of not just high quantities of information, but high quantities of quality information, the bet that I'm going to place is a bet in understanding not just what I'm saying to customer, but that entire broader concept of information and helping customers, very proactively helping customers just make sense out of all of it to help them make better decisions that they ultimately feel confident in. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm, again, thinking through some implications of that. So, and I've certainly seen the examples of the the give, give, give. And it's, you're right. First of all, well-intentioned, give to get, jab, 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 punch, you know, all of the different forms that we've been, we've been hearing. And then the, the telling part, which again, can be very well motivated. People want to be a, here's the other term that we've heard for a long time now, trusted advisor. Oh yeah. We want to be consultative. We want to be the person who can lend some perspective and expertise to it. And let me walk you through that. But the sense making, and that's not just the sense of how our product or solution plugs into what you have, but as you say, all the other priorities, all the other uncertainties that our buyers are dealing with. Without going too much into methodology, I know you don't do methodology, but it's just a general trend. I've also heard more and more these days about the role of coaching within a sales organization. So maybe you have some resources inside your organization and some smart people who are bringing some of these insights in and they're, they have some really high quality insights to share. But as you say, there's also context. Every conversation is a little bit different. So what do you see and, and what do you see chief sales officers, executives, marketing leaders, are they talking about this role of coaching and how they help people, the reps, in their own conversations to make more sense in a more tailored way for the important conversations they're having? The answer is both yes and no, I think, in some ways. At the top of the call, you asked sort of how Gartner, the sales practice, or for that matter, again, the marketing practice, helps clients. So the uh, particularly in the sense-making work, because it's just a brand new idea that's emerged from our research, we've built hiring guides, coaching guides, interview guides, competency models, just a whole suite of tools to to help organizations think a little bit more systematically and practically around, okay, what do I, so it's a big idea, but what do we do with this? So, well, it's not meant to be for what it's worth, nor was Challenger 10 years ago, but that's, we'll park that for now, but it's not meant to be a sales methodology, maybe a sales technique or just a sales approach, a tactic, but one way or another, I think it's critically important. And, and with any tactic approach that you introduce into a sales organization, it's implicit in your point, Jim, is this idea of first-line sales managers, right? Their, their role, as I think we'd all agree, is absolutely critical in driving 
any kind of behavior change in an organization. And the tool most at managers' disposal to make that happen, of course, is coaching. And it's funny, we've just launched a very large-scale, year-long uh, initiative to understand first-line sales managing and management better than we have. We haven't studied first-line sales managers in about eight years now, so it's time to go back and revisit the subject and see what's changed. And when we talk to sales leaders today and tell them, hey, we've just launched this new project, we want to get your input, we want to you know, survey your sales reps and managers, et cetera. It's funny, sales leaders themselves always come back to coaching. It's that they'll say, look, my, my managers have one job, and that is to coach and coach effectively. We're intrigued by other things that managers could and should be doing on top of that, which is, you know, watch this space and we'll see what we find. But there's no question that coaching is critically important. You know, it's funny because from about 2004 to 2008, we went on a journey. This is right before Challenger, about a four-year run of work on, on sales coaching. And I think the lessons we learned then are just important today around, does everyone have a common definition of coaching? So you see these scenarios all the time where manager says, I coached, and sales rep says, I never get coached. And yet it was the exact same interaction. So does everyone have a common understanding of what coaching even is? Coaching is about behaviors. It's not about outcomes. So avoid spreadsheet coaching. Coach to the, the core as opposed to your high performers or lowest performers. Although you coach everyone for retention, you coach your core for performance. There's a, there's a whole range of these kinds of findings that we developed over the course of about four or five years that are just as relevant today. But I think it does beg an interesting question, which is what else can a manager do to drive this kind of change besides coaching? And, and it's an open question for us. It's like, or is, or is it, no, it's, it's all about coaching. <laughs> so we're going to find out. <laughs> I'll, have an, I'll have an answer. Let's do this podcast again in about eight months. And I'll have an answer for you. Well, consider it a date. Brent Adamson, this has been a really good conversation that will beg for some follow-up as you continue to learn more and see more out in the field. Brent coming at us, uh, message managers from Virginia on his way at some point to either seat 12C or hopefully maybe 5B as you get bumped up there along the way. Brent, where can we keep in touch with you, what you're learning, the podcast that you do for Gartner and other things that are going on in the practice there that we can try to try to stay in touch with you. Yeah, sure. So uh, personally, I'm uh, on Twitter at Brent Adamson. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn under my profile of Brent Adamson. The podcast is Lessons in Sales Leadership, which is available on all the various podcast platforms that you might listen to. I think the, the better or the bigger way is to join us at Gartner. And as a client, uh, you can find us at Gartner.com and more information on the sales and marketing practice. And that's where you get sort of the inside view to all of the, the research we're cooking up and what to do with it. It's a, it's a pretty powerful machine we developed. So I've been doing this for all these years because it's still... The story keeps changing, Jim. I think that's what's so interesting, right? It's, you know, when I hear a head of sales today tell me we need to get back to basics, I, I just shake my head and say, look, if back to basics means be more disciplined, then yes. But if back to basics means we need to sell like we did 10 years ago, then they're in a world of hurt. And so that's what keeps me going every day is to help sales and marketing leaders figure out what's next based on how customers are buying differently. And congratulations to you and your colleagues for not resting on your laurels of staying in step with and maybe a, a half step ahead of some of those big changes and disruptions. Cheers, Jim. We're trying. We'll keep trying. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you again, Brent, for joining us on the Manager Message Podcast. Absolutely. My thanks to Brent Adamson for joining us here on the Manage Your Message podcast. A fascinating conversation from someone who's really at the cutting edge about the toughest challenges facing sellers and sales leaders, how to prepare for uncertainty, building flexibility into your approach. And I thought a really interesting piece there these days about how the most successful sellers are no longer just dispensers of information, either giving or telling in a time when buyers are just 
overloaded with information these days, but really sellers as guides for helping buyers make sense of their options and their worlds these days. So pleased that you have joined us on the podcast, whether you are a returning message manager listener, perhaps this is your first time in. We're continuing to build our momentum and build the audience. Many of you have been recommending us to your friends and colleagues, leaving those five-star ratings that helps other professionals to be able to find us and also to get value from the podcast. If you haven't yet done so already, please take just a moment, tap subscribe, that way you'll get all these succeeding episodes of the podcast. It'll just come into your device, into your player, and you won't even have to think about it anymore. I will look forward to connecting with you on LinkedIn. That's my social media platform of choice. Most of the time I'm on Twitter and Facebook to a lesser degree. You can also visit at jimcar.com for a bunch of resources that are available to you, including the message manager memo, which comes to your email inbox as a brief read with something you can put to work right away. And while you're there, you probably know of some professional association or company or both full of people looking for ways to improve their professional conversations and to grow their businesses. On the website, you'll see a speaking page as well as a page with resources just for event professionals, ways you can make your in-person events memorable and valuable and a means to implement your growth plans, whether those are annual meetings, leadership retreats, new hire meetings. There are lots of different ways that we get people together and try to get them aligned to have more customer connections and better customer conversations. You can email me directly at jim at jimcard.com and set up a time to talk by phone if you like. My direct number is also on the website. I look forward to talking with you. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.